This is My Name Is My Name with APS. I spent New Year's Eve with Alex Dublay's family um, and in the tradition that they come from as ex-Soviets. Um, they tried to kill me with vodka and they wouldn't let me sleep until 5 in the morning. Um, some people, that's their normal life. I am not one of those people, unfortunately. So, my uh, sleep schedule has been disturbed and I find myself unable to sleep. So I thought might as well get up and finally edit the remarks from uh, Liverpool. Um, this is the second installment of the uh, public discussions that Alex Dublay, Daniel Coluccello Barber, and myself have uh, been doing as part of our project on uh, secularism, theories of the human, and non-philosophy. The first set of papers is up as episode 12.5 of this podcast. Uh, you can find that on mynameismynamepod.tumblr.com uh, or through iTunes. The topic of the first uh, set of discussion was kind of around temporality, um, also just setting the scene of how we understood secularism in general. For this set of talks, we decided to tackle the concept of world uh, in the various ways that we're trying to approach it. Um, and the title of the panel was None and the World, um, with uh, uh, none having uh, two parentheses around one. Um, you can look on the website if you need to see that grapheme. One comment about the audio. I, for some reason, cannot get GarageBand to consistently... Uh, register two microphones and so Dan is a little quieter than Alex and I because the microphone that was in front of him um, was not working uh, properly so um, it's not unlistenable you can still hear him uh, it's very clear um, and I've upped the levels during his discussion while I've, I've lowered them back down for Alex and my own um, the order that you're gonna hear this in is Dan will speak then Alex will speak, and then I will end. Um, and I have included one sort of final comment from Dan and Alex at the end in response to a question from the audience. Uh, I wasn't able to include the audience questions because, again, um, the microphones are uh, not sensitive enough to pick up audience members well, and we also didn't clear it with everyone to make sure they were okay with uh, being on a podcast. So um, unfortunately you miss out on that conversation side of it, but you do hear the, the papers and a little bit of the conversation there at the end. We will be doing a final uh, public discussion of some of these ideas on March 17th at the New School in New York City. Uh, we'll put up some more information. You can probably find out more information also on Honored for Sick, uh, which is itself.wordpress.com. I don't really write there much anymore, but um, we do post uh, announcements like that. So um, without further ado, uh, here is Daniel Coluccello Barber, followed by Alex Dublay, and then myself. Um, so I'll just... just Quickly to contextualize this as the uh, has done, um, uh, picking up on some of the things that I did the last time we worked workshopping this, I was interested in sort of axiomatically or analytically what I was calling a logic of the non or a logic of the no, um, which is meant to be um, 
in antagonism towards a logic of the post. Uh, post for me being um, essential to a Christian and ultimately secular logic of developmentalism, futurity, and so on. Um, so that, that's, that's what's at stake if, if people at some point want to like raise the relation to that, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, so I'll, I'm going to be talking about two texts from Deleuze, one rather, rather briefly, one at a little bit more length. Um, but before getting into that, I'm just going to read something about um, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to antagonize under the logic of the post, or we could call it the logic of the secular possibility narrative, just very briefly what I have in mind there before moving into what I want to discuss with Deleuze proper. Um, so two criteria that are at stake for me for what I call knowledge without the secular. Um, the secular operates through a purported generalization of possibility, which is articulated via narrative. Knowledge without the secular thus entails knowledge without narrative, or knowledge without the possibility of narrative commencement. The second criteria is that the secular reproduces itself according to possibility. Knowledge without the secular must antagonize the very being of possibility. Such knowledge is denied the possibility to be, but it's not defined by this denial. It's autonomous. Such knowledge says no to secular denial, but it also says no to the secular possibility of no longer, someday no longer being denied. Instead, it knows it never was in need of this possibility. So anyway, jumping into um, the two texts from Deleuze, in both of these, uh, I think they provide key indications of what I'm calling a logic of non, but I contend that they're also limited by a commitment to possibility or the narration thereof. So first, the exhausted. In the exhausted, it's a short essay near the end of his life. Deleuze makes an essential or axiomatic distinction between tiredness and exhaustion. He says, I quote, the tired can no longer realize, but the exhausted can no longer possibilize. Tiredness is thus defined as no longer being able to realize a possibility. Importantly, the possibility's there, it's real, it's just that it can't be realized. And it can't be realized because one is too tired. Exhaustion, however, is different. With exhaustion, it's much more severe. It's not that one can't fulfill or realize the possibility, it's that one can't think the possibility. In other words, tiredness conceives the possibility but can't realize it, whereas exhaustion can't conceive the possibility in the first place. Tiredness challenges the realization of possibility or the possibility of realization. Exhaustion, on the other hand, challenges the very reality of possibility. In this sense, exhaustion is the temporal appearance of possibilities foreclosure. Recalling the secular's self-assertion in terms of possibility, we can then say that exhaustion temporarily resists secular possibility. The possibility by which the secular operates is a possibility to which exhaustion says no. What I want to insist on is that this exhaustion does index a reality. It's a reality, however, that's resistant to possibility as such. Deleuze describes this reality as hiatuses, holes, or tears we couldn't account for, pure intensity. In this sense, there really is a no to possibility. 
this note of possibility is set in virtue of a reality that cannot be narrated as possibility. The point then, in my, as I would argue, the point then is not to look for a new possibility, or as I put it, not to convert to the new. Instead, the point's to refuse possibility and to insist on the logic of non. Deleuze proposes that we do this through exhaustion, but, and here I push back or push further, even Deleuze in his exhaustion still maintains a narrative. Here we can return to the line I first mentioned. The tired can no longer realize, but the exhausted can no longer possibilize. This is to observe that exhaustion, just like tiredness, still narrates a no longer. Exhaustion still maintains an analogy with tiredness in terms of a common narratival no longer. This no longer, in fact, is the logic of the post. I once was something, but I no longer am that something. I am post what I no longer am. Instead, what's necessary is a logic of non without any logic of post, instead of the no longer, the never was. So now I'm going to shift to a passage in Cinema 2 from Deleuze where he discusses belief, so-called belief in the world. Here Deleuze is concerned with what he discerns as a uh, sensory motor break, a break of the sensory motor. This means that the capacity to form a functioning loop between what is sensed in the world or how one is affected by the world and then, on the other hand, an action based on this sensation affection is broken. What is broken, in other words, is the capacity to constitute history, to link the presently given to possible futures, to link sensation or affect in the present to action that would realize possibilities in, through, or as the future. This breakdown in possibility is also, or even the result of, a breakdown in narrative. It is through narrative that the present is made into a future possibility, and it is through narrative that the past is made into a coherent element of history. One could then say that there's no coherence between affect or sensation and action in this break. This is due at essence to a sort of excess of affect. The intensity of affect cannot be adequated through action. Hence, affect gives rise not to action, but to inaction, or to the incapacity for action. The break between the sensory and the motor the utter breakdown of any link between affection and movement is thereby a dismantling of the cartography of history, a dismantling of the capacity to map movement or to map the globe. The name Deleuze gives to the subject position of incapacity for action is the seer. I quote, the sensory motor break makes man a seer who finds himself struck by something intolerable in the world and confronted by something unthinkable in thought, end quote. The seer is stunned, paralyzed. Deleuze speaks of a strange fossilization. If the sensory motor link is transitive, then the seer is intransitive. I'd like to pay attention to the way that the seer's incapacity for action is marked by a breakdown or impasse that is simultaneously on the so-called subjective side and the so-called objective side. On the side of the subject, there's the unthought of thought. On the side of the object, there's an intolerability of world. The sensory motor link, in its unbroken modality, in its linking capacity, in its functioning status, is a relation of subject and object, man and world. On the other hand, in its unbroken state, or as the seer, there is a non-relation of unthought and intolerable. Man, the thinking subject, 
is here unthought. World is here affect or intolerability. My contention is that what is essential is to art articulate imminence as the non-relational rather than as the relational, as the zero point rather than as the minimum. This is to say that imminence cannot be a relation between two things, for the two things, unthought and intolerability, are without reference. They are indexes of negativity, the non or un of thought, and the non or in of tolerability. Imminence is thus the imminence of non and non, the imminence of breakdown or breakup. The unthought, Deleuze says, is powerless to function. And this powerless, powerlessness must be insisted upon. The powerless is not, quote, a simple inferiority which would strike us in relation to thought. It is part of thought so that we should make our way of thinking from it without claiming to be restoring an all-powerful thought. In other words, powerless does not enter into a pre-constituted thought. Rather, powerlessness is already there as what thought denies in order to constitute itself as a coherent point of reference. And on the other side, if the world is intolerable, this judgment seems to mark a demand for the end of the world. I quote again. It is not in the name of a better or truer world that thought captures the intolerable in the world, but on the contrary, it is because this world is intolerable that it can no longer think a world or think itself. End quote. In other words, intolerability does not occur within a pre-constituted world, in order to then call for the constitution of a better or truer world. Intolerability is not between two worlds, the worse and the better, the falser and the truer, or perhaps Christian style, the already and the not yet. Rather, intolerability is what says no to what breaks up the very coherence of something imagined as world. For Deleuze, this breaking of world, simultaneous to or imminent with the unthought, may be addressed only by belief. Without going into it, I find this, this marking of belief, what it, as a placeholder, I find that compelling, but I'm going to critique this. Um, I'm going to critique it particularly in relation to belief in the world. So there's an obstacle in this articulation, I argue, for belief in the world. This obstacle may be noted by some questions. If the world is broken up by intolerability in what seems an essential manner, then why must the world be believed in at all? Would not belief in the world then require a taming down, a restriction or management of intolerability? Why not say, instead of belief in the world, that what's necessary is belief in intolerability, such that the world that makes intolerability must be refused or ended? Simply put, what is the point in saving the world? If there's something in intolerability that's irreducible to or incommensurable with the world, making my point non-question style, there's something in intolerability that's irreducible to or incommensurable with the world, then this incommensurability is ultimately denied by the concern to put belief in service of linking anew to the world. And Deleuze does want belief to perform this task. He poses for himself the question, I quote, how to restore our belief in the world. Here we can see the same thing that emerged in his discussion of exhaustion, the logic of no longer the attempt to put even radical breakdown into a narrative of loss or a narrative of restoration amounts to the same thing. 
In fact, this narrative commitment is also noticeable in Deleuze's description of the sensory motor break as something, quote, of which man has been dispossessed. And I think it's relevant positionally here that it's man who's been dispossessed. Narrative is here evident in the dis of dispossession. Man once possessed, once owned the link to the world. But at present, man has been dispossessed. Man no longer has that link. I contend against such narration of the no longer that what is essential is to think the breakdown, not in terms of loss, but in terms of absence. Here I'm following the, the argument and claims of Frank Wilderson. Deleuze does claim that belief in the world is not, and I quote, it's not addressed to a different or transformed world. That belief in the world means belief in this world as it is. My claim, however, is that the as it is is not the world. Attending to the as it is, I argue, entails turning against the world or against the discourse of the world. For the discourse of the world, even in Deleuze's critical formulation, seems to loop back to a narrative of world. In other words, what Deleuze refuses, a different or transformed world, seems to be built into the very logic of the world in which he wants to believe. It is therefore necessary again to insist on an absence, not a loss, of relation between the world and the as it is. Having said this, having said this, I want to note that Deleuze, despite his unwillingness to ultimately cut ties with narrative or with the world, does present some means for articulating the as it is against the world. This is, I don't, I don't give a damn about the name of Deleuze in this sense, but insofar as this names a, how should we put it, a certain lexicon or grammar of how Western philosophy works, I want to see are there, are there ways that we can take tools in what he's doing to take belief in as it is against the world. So here's, here's what I have in mind about how this might be done. Deleuze claims that belief is a matter of exteriority. He remarks, thought finds itself taken over by the exteriority of a belief outside any interiority. Note the taken over by, outside of any interiority. This is of particular relevance due to the fact that belief is hereby articulated without world. Belief is simply exteriority, the baseless reality of affect, without narrative or discursive support. Note, in fact, the difference in, how should we put it, in prepositional direction. Belief in the world, you have a dative, an in the world. Belief, exteriority belief, here belief marks the immersion of being taken over <coughs> by exteriority. Belief thus refuses the world in favor of exteriority, which is irreducible <coughs> to any object and which does not register in discourse. Continuing with this antagonism or non-relation to discourse, Deleuze claims that believing, quote, is only it is simply believing in the body. It is reaching the body before discourses, before words, before things are named, end quote. Crucially, however, he then adds that what is necessary is to, quote, believe in the flesh, end quote. I want to insist on a stark divergence between these two terms, body and flesh. In other words, I want to insist that belief in being taken over by exteriority must be marked specifically as flesh and never as body. This is because the body, denied though it may, may be by discourse, fails to index the anti-blackness of discourse in the sense or nonsense that flesh does, and that flesh does mark it. Here I have in mind the distinction made by Hortense Spiller's longish quote here. Before the body, there is the flesh, 
that zero degree of social conceptualization that does not escape concealment under the brush of discourses, of, under the brush of discourse, or the reflexes of iconography. Even though, the even though the European hegemonies stole bodies out of West African communities in concern with the African middleman, we regard this human and social irreparability, irreparability as high crimes against the flesh, as the person of African females and African males registered the wounding. If we think of the flesh as primary, then we mean it's seared, divided, ripped apartness, riveted to the ship's hole, fallen or escaped overboard." End quote. I'm almost done. Such flesh demands belief, but this belief, following Spillers, is precisely what is denied by discourse, denied even in the body's opposition to discourse. The body possesses a minimum of appearance, whereas the flesh, Spillers claims, concerns a zero degree. This zero degree of flesh is marked by absence, not by the narrative passage of loss and or restoration. In other words, the flesh is not a matter of belief if belief is a matter of transitivity. If there's a point in Deleuze's discussion where the belief in such flesh can be articulated or not, it is certainly not in belief's world, but in belief's vertigo of spacing. Denied transitivity, vertigo registers as void. It is the interstice between images that voids the world made through these images. What is essential here is that the void says no to the capacity for transit. As Deleuze claims, the fissure or interstice is primary. Consequently, the void is not something, Deleuze says, the image would cross in order to continue. On the contrary, this vertiginously spacing void, quote, is the radical calling into question of the image, unquote. And I contend furthermore that this vertiginously spacing void must be the refusal of the very world image in which one is supposed to believe. That's all. Thanks. So in our Berkeley discussion uh, several months ago, I laid out several basic points which I I want to very briefly recapitulate here in almost like purely axiomatic form. Um, and so one, imminence should not be equated with the world. Rather, imminence is that which is foreclosed both to, world, to the world and to the transcendence of God. Two, imminence is aligned not with the, an, any subject, any autonomous subject, but with becoming nothing and a certain kind of you know, dispossession, bracketing the, the dis part of this, maybe uh, a kind of a null subject or a desubjectivated form of life. Three, imminence rejects the futurity of time, which is to say imminence is not an imminence of history, but an imminence that undermines the narrative of history. Four, imminence as characteristic of the one rather than the world or transcendence of God challenges the dominant secular theological distribution of concepts between world and transcendence. Okay. So at Berkeley, I articulated these positions in relation to my interpretation of Meister Eckhart, but another framing context here and there was the non-philosophical thought of Francois Laruelle. And here I want to, do, want to go uh, and read it in, 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 in that relation. One of the questions that emerged for me from the communal discussion afterwards was how to correctly articulate the grammar of negation and affirmation as it relates to non-philosophy and the position that takes the one as radical imminence. And this is what I want to explore a bit today. So one, I want to start with a basic question. What is the relation of negation to the one? <clears throat> 
Tra traditional philosophical and theological grammars structure that relation several ways. Let me gesture two, two of them here. First, negation can indicate or act as a kind of splitting or scission of the one, uh, the one that it negates or declares it already broken in order to recuperate it at some point down the line. Negation here is a mechanism of work, a disruption that allows the one to be, a projected, to be projected as a future synthesis. Meanwhile, negation labors towards that impossible future. But negation can take less productive forms as well. It can simply embody a kind of a radical disruption, a certain nihilism. It can, it can become synonymous with mystical darkness or with a neo-Freudian death drive, thereby abandoning futurity and hope no less than work and mediation. These two articulations can be endlessly played off each other or combined or contrasted. So, for example, futurity, shipwrecked on cosmic nihilism or the death drive, uh, or contra and contrasted with negativity or that negation co-opted despite itself by the temporal unfolding and enfolding courses of history. So... Or in a different register, darkness and apophatic transcendence, whether divine or nihilistically figured, posed in opposition to a productive negativity linked to work which thereby legitimates the transformative future-oriented narrative of secular modernity. Here, the differentiation or the main line of division seems to be whether one believes in a future salvation by, uh, by whichever means one wants to get at it. Uh, from, on the other hand, the media—sorry, uh, um, by whichever means one imagines—from the me from mediation to the providential version, to by contrast the position that abrogates all futurity. In each case, I would suggest, however, the one is is posed as sundered and direct. So, for those of you who've read or encountered uh, Laroa's thought, um, one of its basic kind of positions uh, is that a not its non-philosophical positions is that the one is a name for radical imminence and it cannot be divided. Uh, the one is not to be achieved, to be worked for, it's not a product of conversion or a synthesis. But here I want to insist on the addition that it is also a rejection of the other half of this divide, of the insistence on the negative uh, on the negative as a death drive, as an apophatic desert, of an irrecoupable negativity, or even as a name for social death. I want to suggest that non-philosophy is not a movement from productive negativity to an unproductive one, but a relativization of the entire binary. So non-philosophy contains a, a devastating critique of the world, as Anthony has laid out, as Dan has laid out. Um, you know, it, it shows the world's power to subjugate, to persecute, to victimize the human. It is a critical kind of determination of the world as constructed by philosophical enclosure, by philosophical thought, and it can be read as calling for its de destruction. I'm generally um, um, I see the power of such a position, I basically endorse it. But I also think non-philosophy is up to something else. What I want to propose is that by taking the one as radical imminence, which is separated from the all, that is from the totality of the world, and, and posing that one as radically autonomous, what non-philosophy allows us to do is resist giving the one the final power over coding the real as the negative. It is not enough to decouple negativity from productivity and futurity, but still retain it as a negative. For that determination is still the determination of the world and from the perspective of the world. What non-philosophy proposes, at least in my reading, or at least this is what I'm trying out today, is not only a critique of the world, but a unilateral subtraction from it, a move that affirms the autonomy of the real or the one vis-a-vis -vis the world. The world thinks it knows the real and can subjugate it or, or disavow that real, but that's just philosophical hallucinations. So 
I want to propose that Laruel's locution, such as the autonomy of the real, and it's what he calls prior priority, this kind of uh, priority that cannot be countered within the structures of priority, is not only a rejection of the world, but of the very coding of negativity and negation that it normatively deploys. To think the position of non-philosophy rigorously, I want to suggest, entails not a refusal or rebellion against the world, or not only that, but also radical resistance to world's power to code radical imminence as negation, as nothingness, as negativity. But that, because that decoding is never the ultimate condition. I take this to be the power of Laurel's formulation, the radical imminence of the one stands in prior priority in relation to the world. Indeed, to put it perhaps too plainly, I think this negative coding of the real is the final ruse of the world itself. To think from the one, then, means to unilateralize the world as transcendence, to render it uh, transcendence. But it also means to relativize its judgments and norms, its very symbolic space of the world. It is no longer to, to only attribute the negative to that which the world wants to persecute as the absolute negative, as social death, but rather to think according to it and render the world itself the force of death, destruction, and negation, that which forecloses and render impossible the one appropriating and persecuting it. And I think partially this is because the world cannot actually accomplish fully once and for all what it sets out to do. And non-philosophy becomes one of the theoretical tools to think according to radical imminence, its force of the real against the world, its authorities, and its weapons. So the conception of radical autonomy is central insofar as it means the one is not determined by the world. If the one, or also called the real for Laruel, has radical autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the world, this means that the world and its authorities must be taken as having only a relative power vis-a-vis -vis it. This is the power of taking the one as radical imminence. It poses the world itself as negation, as the non-one, which in the last instance is nothing but the one itself except appropriated and deformed and kind of, um, I'll leave it at appropriate and deformed by authorities of the world. So the world kind of misrecognizing and then implementing its kind of that misrecognized vision. The vision in one of Laruel's kind of one of Laruel's terms takes the world as ultimately a bracketed negation that, that ultimately never escapes the one except by certain theoretical hallucination, which which is to say the world takes itself as the ultimate final self-sufficient kind of legislation on what the real is. Um, in Laruel's formulation, I'm going to read a short quote, but maybe a slightly confusing one. Treating the, uh, treating the world, and this is what he proposed, uh, so uh, Division One entails treating the world no longer in a Christian manner as, an, as nothing, as sin, as darkness against God, but universally as the non-one, already determined as the non-one, these are the two, I'll explain in a second, globalized corruption and confusion of a hallucinated transcendence against the one or against the man and person, as he also writes. The point is that uh, what, it, uh, what I take him to be saying is something like, the world is nothing but that which attempts to bracket the one and become self-sufficient, but ultimately something that must be seen as itself just the, the power of negation. In other words, the non and non-philosophy is not a negation, whether nihilistic or dialectic, but is a certain imminent and unilateral withdrawal from the power of the philosophy in its world. I think to take seriously Laruel's injunction of thinking from the one rather than thinking about or towards the one as something to be achieved, to be kind of found in the end, um, is to become aware of the messianic dimension of philosophy, precisely because the absoluteness of world's perspective and judgment is relativized vis-a-vis -vis the radical autonomy of the one.
This is the power of Larwell Strange. Are these going to write? These are not going to write. Oh, no, the moment. The it's, moment. A, it's a magic board. It's. Uh, oh, I don't, we're not going to mess with the magic world. Um, this is the power of Larwell's formalization, where he says uh, of one, and then he brackets the other all in a kind of. Um, like the distinction between the the all and the other is rel is relativized vis-a-vis -vis the one and made kind of irrelevant. The schema suggests that the all of the world and its relation to transcendent alterity must be seen as part of a single complex mechanism in a kind of unilateral relation to the one. And the messianic practice of non-philosophy affirms the primacy of radical imminence in relation to the combined forces of the ontological delimitation of the world and the theological supplementarity. Uh, of transcend uh, of the theological supplementary supplement supplement of alterity. Um, I'm going to just say one thing. That the reason why I talk about the the, the messianic here is because in Larawell's thought, uh, the messianic I think is figured in a whole lot of kind of names such as you know human human messiahs, future Christs, Christ subjects even. Um, and I think that although those names themselves can multiply and are in some ways contingent, I think the the actual messianic dimension is not a contingent one. It's not a secondary or supplementary imperative, but part of the kind of performative dimension of that kind of thinking itself. So I want to propose here that it might be worthwhile reading this formulation of radical imminence as to deploy a term from Fred Moten and Stefana Harney, an undercommons of the world. And perhaps even more than that, the undercommons of the world together with the eschatological or divine transcendence that is supposed to be its, the only impossible savior. So the radical imminence becomes the undercommons of the world and, the, and of world God taken together. <coughs> the one comes, comes under the world. It indexes mobile lives, generic uncountable forms of living, affirmative forces, and anonymity that pose a perpetual danger to the order enforced by the world. The, the world cannot but take on this mobile cannot but take on this mobile life cannot approach the undercommons except by coding it as negatively trying to manage it and subjugate it if not outright eliminate and annihilate it but the ontology of the world never exhausts the capacity of thought or life even if it always contends that it does what is condemned by the world to being a stranger to being a victim to social death to persecution extermination is not only what the world makes of it to think from the undercommons is to affirm the primacy of of a common force that comes under the world, undoing its mappings, its cartographies, its structure of power, its civil and political societies, and the individuation and situation of bodies and grids of what is proper. Where are we in terms of time? So positioning the one as the undercommons according to which thought must be constructed also entails sidelining, I think, dominant, certain dominant division within continental thought. I think centrally it sidelines the discussion or at least kind of radically transforms the main coordinates of it between uh, univocal ontologies such as uh, found mostly in Deleuze's work on Spinoza and those that affirm alterity in Levinas's work. Because, this, uh, because what it proposes is thinking univocity of the one as imminently separated from the world and God, which is to say you, whatever, you, whatever is univocal it's not ontology, it's not worldly, it's not of the world, it's below, it's below ontology. The world is no longer opposed to divine transcendence or cosmic darkness, but rather the two poles are seen as partaking in a conceptual matrix, which in its entirety stands in contrast to the radical imminence of the one that comes under them.
in other ways of putting it, I think for Lara Well, and I think in some ways for Eckhart, being is not univocal, rather univocity holds before and below all ontological formation. Uh, a short quote, he writes, more than nobility, the humility of the one is universal in a univocal matter through detachment from being and beings. Um, I think this entails thinking univocity not in relation to the all, to the structure of the cosmos of the world, but to lives lived below and underneath the world, desubjectivated, anonymous, common lives. The one or the real of non-philosophy and the undercommons are names for what precedes the combat between enlightened secular reason and transcendent theological reasoning, affirming instead the lives, bodies, and words of which the world and God perpetually reproduce themselves. These lives without a why, generic lives, a life in Deleuze's words, or what Larwell would also term the lived without life, they're uncountable outside of grids of individuation organized by the world, generic forms of livability, minority, minoritarian pathways of the one without consistency. They populate the heresy of radical imminence and carry an affirmative force despite the world's desire to subjugate and exterminate them. This is the power of thinking from the one, for all the, words, for all the world's determination to code it negatively and only negatively. It carries a messianic upsurge, a force that is strange to the world, but nonetheless has an originary primacy in relation to it. The world establishes the realm of possibility and valuation, but the force of radical imminence remains across its, its worldly appropriations, disfigurements, disavowals, and extermination always there to be lived differently, furtively, fugitively, and messianically. So kind of finally and all too briefly, which um, I want to say that one could put, what one could formulate, or at least I'm, I'm thinking about formulating it in relation to discussion over the world's anti-blackness, which is in some ways a more direct response to, uh, or kind of dialogue with Dan Anthony. The world is built on anti-blackness, as many uh, theorists have have repeatedly kind of shown, and so has the world itself. But the question remains on whether blackness has the power to unilateralize the world, its history, its gods, or whether it remains only the name for the social death that the world needs to perpetuate its phantasmatic solidity. I take Wilderson to be the preeminent exponent of the latter position. But Moen's theorizations elaborate a lexicon of black sociality, of mobile life, and of the undercommons that tries to think of radical imminence that undermines the world and withdraws from it the final power over the distribution of the affirmation negation. This logic, I would suggest, converges with Laruel's insofar as the one is radically inconsistent. It does have, it has no subjective ontological solidity. It's persecuted by the world's powers and hallucinations. But it is also, and this is the important point for me, even more fundamentally, without lack, needing nothing from that world, a life not exhausted by the lack imposed on it by the world. Or I think as Dan would, would say, uh, it was never, never was in need. Thank you. I'll probably give a different paper now after hearing these two, um, but I feel like events are in motion that I uh, have to follow through on. So I'm just gonna read what I wrote. Um, I, I intend this, uh, this, this short paper to be evocative. Um, there's a number of ideas behind it and that I've taken from other thinkers and I do kind of engage in that hermeneutic mode and provide a, an, explanation, uh, an explication of them in, in a fuller form, but um, I largely do not cite here, uh, not even in the usual ways that we would do in a, in a verbal paper. Um, I think many of you, uh, you know, we have a lot of different sorts of um, disciplines here 
Um, and so I think many of you are going to hear those references if you're familiar with them. Um, but it's not a comment on their work so much as an attempt to construct something out of it to, to kind of survey the field um, that I'm, I'm working out of. So the work of the paper is to sketch out what I see as a background um, or the background of attempting to think um, a generic form of tradition or a generic form of discourse. Uh, in a sense, this means a kind of secularity, um, since being generic in tradition means being able to engage across traditions, um, or at least being able to, to think um, in the light of other traditions, um, which I take all traditions to do Im implicitly in their radical modes. Um, however, these radical modes operate against a background that captures and determines them and I use the traditional Western philosophical and theological name world to name that apparatus and capture. And I trace the shape of that world here, at least I try to. Um, such a, a background threatens to envelop, um, really to englobe, and I'm thinking of um, people who have done work on the move from world to global politics, uh, englobe such genericity and turn it into a kind of universality that once again erases humans as radically lived imminence. That is, it threatens to turn those humans into narratives, tropes, forms, to treat them as something that may be captured, may be killed, and may be forgotten or never known. Whereas I want generic to, to name something that uh, um, speaks to a kind of commons, and so maybe generic's not the best term, but um, that's what we're going for. So I, uh, I recently taught a course where students had to present the ideas of essays that the rest of the course um, had not read, the rest of the, the people in the class had not read. And I assigned an essay um, I wrote attempting to summarize scholarship around the post-secular. Um, and I, I don't normally do this, but I thought it was, uh, I, I thought I wrote something simple enough um, that it would work for a, a class on post-secularism for undergraduates. Um, I'm not sure that I was right. Uh, the student accused me of having too many run-on sentences. And I, I think she meant that they were too long, but Maybe she's right. Um, she also did some research on the internet um, and stumbled across the, the entry for post-secularism on this site called Rational Wiki. Um, and I thought it would be worth quoting that here. Um, uh, so uh, there's a lot of six in, throughout here because there's a lot of weird typos in the, the, the entry. But um, I quote, post-secularism is an empty term that radical apologists and hopeless postmodernists post use with little agreement on what it actually means. What little can be universally gathered from the various near incomprehensible books written on the topic is that either secularism as it is slash was is not the force of change and liberal tolerance as the quote unquote narrative that secularists believe it is and that secularism is dying or never really existed. It has been claimed that the lack of a clear definition of just what post-secularism is uh, is one of its greatest strengths. This is common of most postmodern tropes as well as most post-anythings. A lack of any clear definitions, wild disagreement, watery evidence, grand claims, and non-rational framework are common in post-structuralism, post-feminism, post-humanism, post-blah-blah-blah, and so on. It is most likely that post-secularism comes from religious thinkers who lament the disappearance of certain oppressive Christian quote-unquote values from democratic societies and a reaction to the decreasing amount of attention people pay to religion besides fundamentalist madness. Unquote. Okay. So, <laughs> how much of this is true might be judged by how much the accusations sting despite the clearly undeserved smugness of the author. Um, I think for those who have engaged in imperial politics around post-secularism, um, you know, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, I think those ac accusations ring true. 
Um, but they, uh, there was always something missing in those uh, post-secular Christian analyses anyway, just as there's something missing in the various defenders of secularism represented comically by our rational wiki author. Um, what was missing was that they shared the same world and the same sense of what shapes the world. So the world doesn't work anymore. Uh, this is what I think uh, scholars mean by refusing the secular, by naming as a placeholder our moment as post-secular. I think uh, at its best, that's what post-secular names. The world does not work anymore. The world is another name for the secular, but the post-secular does not name a post-worldly politics, only that the world does not work. This is the way that Christian Latin denoted the term, to speak of uh, the saculum was to speak of the world, and specifically of the age before the coming reign of God the age that was holding back the Antichrist, marking time, keeping everything in its place as in the vision of Romans 13. Um, since the beginning of the colonial struggles in the 1960s, it has become clear that Paul was wrong when he said, and I quote, therefore whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, unquote. Um, it is interesting to note here that the Greek word translated as terror uh, also carries the relational meaning of reverence for one um, over another, and in 1 uh, Peter chapter 3 refers to reverence for one's husband. So how does the world keep everything in place? Through terror and the reverence that terror creates when it marks this as different from everyday time. That means that there is a split within the secular world already. It marks itself as the space of the everyday, the profane, the empty, but it can only do, th do so through an appeal to terror that designates the terrorized as outside of the everyday and a reverence for the authority of those who may lawfully commit terror that signifies a further split between the terrorizable and the terrorist. Such a split is unsurprising as it forms the borders and hinges along which the world is bound together. And I note another interesting etymological point without like falling into a gombinism, that both saculum and religio are thought to be derived from words that mean both to tie or bind. Thus, whether it is a matter of virtue or terror, it remains a matter of binding. So the secular is constructed out of the materials of religion. Now I say this noting that religion in this way is of course the construction itself of the Christian world as has become a commonly accepted idea amongst a, a lot of people in an audience like this. There would be no secular without something that it differs from. In terms of the way the secular is understood today that something is religion, what marks this age as different from another age is that it is not religious. The tricks of the secular are well known to an audience like this one. It marks itself as uh, a between times uh, but where the former religious forms of authority have ended and some future form of authority may come. But as secular, it simply leaves space open. Yet we all know that there are rulers in this between time. They are the, the adults in tailored but still ugly suits lecturing the irresponsible as adults always do. Politicians who extol the virtues of growing up and refuse to have ideological conversations while ignoring that their rule is one of program misery and exploitation. Everything they program is for the future, a time always said to always be on the way, to be coming, and that dominates and harasses us now. Plan for the future. The rush of panic and fear, lying in bed, holding another human being in your arms, no longer in the moment, but thinking, how are we going to afford this? What is happening now does not matter, only the future does, and only the secular will secure that future for the world, or so we are told. Plan for the future. 
The same thing is said in 14 words, only now stripped of the slogan's particular determination. We must secure the existence of people and a future for children. These determinations may be dropped in a world where whiteness is a credit given and is relationally determined in local context. The world is not the future, but it lives as the means of the achieving the future such that the future will never come because the world is all that may secure it and so must be defended at all cost, including that of a truly alien future, a foreign future, a strange future. So if the future is to be now, then we must end the world. Even the avant-garde of European philosophy wants the future, wants to change the world and not simply interpret it. And so it seeks to achieve the promise of the, enlightenment, the Enlightenment's mythos. There's nothing Zeno about a European future. There's nothing Zeno about the world because as a world, its wholeness is predicated upon the stranger requiring papers. If the future is to be strange, to be foreign, it will not be ours. And I mean that very seriously in this, in this room. Um, that will be good news to some, though perhaps none who are gathered here, even on the edge uh, of a crumbling system. And that can be academia or Britain or whatever you want to put there. Uh, the world is that upon which creatures such as us take on, um, the world is that upon which creatures such as us take on our distinctions as subjects that delineate the possibilities for our life. The various subject positions we may take within the world are plentiful. Um, this notion of world as the frame or horizon upon which the essence of the human may be seen comes to us from Heidegger. Um, for Heidegger, the problem of world emerges as an element of the problem of Dasein, or what it means to be a human being. Um, in his uh, 1929 through 30 lecture course, um, which takes the title, The Fundamental Concepts of Metaphysics, World, Finitude, Solitude, he claims that homelessness is the very determination of philosophy. Homelessness for Heidegger is not true homelessness, but rather a feeling of not being, quote unquote, everywhere at home. This urge to be everywhere at home, Heidegger says, is really a desire to be within the whole called forth as a whole. This as a whole is the world. To be everywhere at home is to be in the whole, that is, the world. That we are not at home everywhere drives us to philosophize, Heidegger says, to be directed towards the whole or the world or being in general. Uh, and I quote, this is where we are driven in our homesickness to being as a whole, unquote. That may be true, but it is also the desire to literally be everywhere. It is what drives colonization and a certain kind of world making that only exists through a political ontology of distinction. Um, Heidegger is correct that the problem of world emerges as an element of the problem of the human or what it means to be a human being. Yet if it is true, as Fanon claims that, and I quote, a black is not a man, then black existence is absent from this ontology altogether. Um, if black existence as determined by the world has life, it has life in a worldless way, in a deracinated way. The world has already ended for some, and yet that existence is lived outside the frame of this ontology. We can affirm that. Uh, but it feels pointless to write about it from this perspective since writing about such an existence is still determined by the grammar of the world rather than the grammar of suffering the world. Um, Fanon provides a, a subtle investigation of the, the decolonial struggle um, in his famous chapter on violence in the wretched of the earth. Um, and I, I'm wanting this move from world to the wretched of the earth to move us towards thinking about a, a difference from world. Um, 
that subtle investigation might be understood as this grammar of suffering the world. The explosion of decolonial violence is on the one hand an attempt to end the world, but there is also a certain kind of reversal uh, that Fanon traces in his phenomenology, a way that these struggles may easily play out within a still colonial frame, where they may be post-colonial rather than a refusal of the colony. For the colonized desire to take the place of the colonizer. Uh, for good reason, of course, the colonized desires to take uh, the place of the colonizer. Though this mere reversal is part of the um, amphibology of the world's revolution and conservation identified by Laurel and others. Fanon writes of the colonial world, this compartmentalized world, this world divided in two, is inhabited by different species. The colonial world is a Manichaean world, unquote. It is indeed a Manichaean world, but this misses the deeper insight or a deeper insight of Manichaean Gnosticism. That is, that this world is a failure. It no longer works. If the colonizer kind of human being is replaced by the colonized kind of human being, the world will continue if that colonized species splits into two other kinds of human beings again. Fanon's analysis is often confused as describing an even development of decolonization, but what he actually has traced is its uneven developments and the ever-present traps laid by the colonizers who might even call for national self-determination as they themselves move to set up economic dependence of the colony now emptied of settler colonialists aside from a few representative of multinationals who will work with the more colonially accepted, uh, acceptable of the colonized. Okay. So the world is not all that is the case for the world depends upon the earth. Uh, there is an identity beyond the world, one beyond even the end of the world. This is the deeper insight of Manichaean Gnosticism that Fanon does not explicitly turn to. So how does one end the world? Um, it likely will not be for those of us gathered here to decide. However, if we want to think from the end of the world, we must begin by thinking under the conditions of those subjects that are cast as worldless, um, those who are cast like Heidegger's stones. So you know, Heidegger very famously delineated worlding to humans as humans are, are world making, um, animals are poor in world, and the stone is worldless. And this comes up in debates between Moton and Wilderson. But the world is built out of such stones, out of material that lives unrecognized as vital, as mattering, as a suffering more profound than sympathy casts suffering, um, as a suffering perhaps beyond this name suffering. The world ends in the earth, the earth has no end. I do not mean that it will, will not perhaps one day cease, it well, but the earth as a name for all things deracinated and all things that are exploited as resource, that earth lives and dies without any purpose or sense other than its now, its moment. The earth does not survive, it suffers and matters, it is a worldless stone thrown at the world's police, pointless, but Okay, so this is APS speaking, not at the conference. Um, first, uh, that is how I ended the paper, in case some people are confused by that laconic ending, thinking that there's an editing issue. Um, second, uh, the audio for this uh, was a little difficult in order to hear the questions from the audience, but I wanted to include just two responses from Alex and Dan to a question uh, just to summarize the question, essentially, the question is, what does this theoretical work have to do with 
practical or political action. So the next voice you're going to hear is going to be Dan followed by Alex. Well, I mean, for my part, I don't, I mean, I, d I don't speak for the others, but I mean, partly I want to resist the question in the sense that I want to stay in my lane, you know, uh, and I, I mean, in part, uh, it's, I'm not, yeah, on one hand I want to stay, on one hand I want to stay in my lane, right? But if I understand what's at stake politically, right, here, if I could speak on this, is that what I'm trying to do here and what I understand conceptual work to be in general, it involves the creation of concepts, mm. um, and concepts can be tools or perhaps better as weapons, but um, it also involves the, an, uh, an analysis, a breaking down of grammar. So I'm really interested in, for me, very fundamental things, like what does it mean to say post? What does it mean to say possibility? And, and my contention is that actually our, the, the reason the world is so wretched, uh, or how should I put it, the wretchedness of, or the incapacity to combat the wretchedness of the world one way of dealing with that is to deal with the grammar, because the very abilities to think or map or whatever um, are severely limited. So on the one hand, I want to do that. More broadly, what I would say, maybe a little more specifically, is that to speak of the world, I think generally the way the world works is that, um, and this is where the intolerability comes in, is that you see intolerability, you see things that are wretched, you see, you see things that are fucked because you are, not everybody in the same way, but what would it, like the rage at that, maybe rage is not the right word, but rage in all of its modalities, the rage at that, what would it mean to have a grammar adequate to that rage? And my contention is that the grammar that we have philosophically and more broadly in the Western dispositif or whatever, is a grammar meant to stop that rage. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is I want to break up that grammar so that the rage might find ways to be more self-determinative. And I, I wouldn't, I have no interest in speaking what that would look like. But for me, any politics worthy of the name would have to be commenced from there. Um. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll add maybe like a, a few things. I think I agree with, mo with, with most of what Dan said. I think part of, I mean, I, I, whatever politics I'm involved with, I always think that in some ways, I, I, in a strange way, like, well, um, I'll, I'll answer your question uh, <laughs> more directly than that. I was like, oh. Um, I, w I would say what I actually just answered to Dan, for example, to, to think about uh, the, to have a thought that would, uh, for example, approve or can think of um, or align itself with, for example, various actions that are not, um, not about, for example, uh, utility or acquis acquisition, but are, 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 um, are allowed to think the possibility of things like theft or lo looting for, uh, for the continuation of survival or something that, uh, for a thought that can think of affirmative force, uh, of some kind of affirmative force, whichever form it actually politically takes, 
uh, of those who are coded as radical, kind of radically uh, kind of like excluded by that world. So like the, in the in the concept of the stone, but I also uh, that or not the concept, but the, the kind mm -hmm. of the throwing of the stone or the rock. Um, but I ultimately think that for me, it's also ultimately a theoretical project of trying to think against certain dominant kind of theoretical, either for, you know on certain days philosophical, certain day theological grammars that I think prevent thinking from a certain kind of imminence that rejects both the world and any salvation from the outside for that world. And then whatever I think eth ethical, political, or aesthetic practices that might emerge, it's would in some ways would have to be determined by it taking up in those contexts, right? So that there's a certain kind of thinking that's being done here that then might have a kind of po like politics involved, but that's already, for me, not the thinking. That's the politics in the same way that the aesthetics would be an aesthetic production rather than something that's necessarily kind of coming out of that thought. The thought is just kind of allows for, for um, a, a, re a kind of a reformulation of how, how we think. Tonight is like petrol. All right, so that is our discussion. Again, this was from July in Liverpool, England, um, at the Conference for the Association of Continental Philosophy of Religion. If you are interested in hearing the final installment of this and you live around New York City, again, March 17th at the New School, um, there's going to be another public discussion between Alex, Dan, and myself, uh, along with Beatrice Marovic, acting as a moderator and interlocutor for these ideas. Um, I'll put information up on the Tumblr site. My name is mynamepod.tumblr.com as well as at anunforsik, uh, which is itself.wordpress.com. Uh, if you are interested in the Laura Well stuff and you're finding getting a foothold in his own work a little bit difficult, um, Edinburgh University Press has just published a book I've talked about on here before. It's a guidebook to his principles of non-philosophy. There I provide a constellation of concepts, figures, traditions uh, that Laura Well is uh, really emerging out of um, while he's also constructing um, from that emergence. Um, so uh, if you are you know, somewhat versed in modern European philosophy or critical theory, this is a book that should be able to help you understand what he's doing um, and you can get that on Amazon or I'm sure it'll eventually be pirated and you can steal it if you don't care about uh, publishers being able to publish or authors being able to uh, buy a couple beers now and then. I don't know, maybe that's what I should do for a show sometime, get a, a publisher on here to kind of talk about things. It's a, I actually, joking aside, I, I know it's a complex issue. When I was a grad student, I wouldn't have been able to do the work that I did. Uh, without sites like LibGen and ARG um, and others. So I am joking, but there are you know, obvious issues. I'm not sure when the next podcast is going to be up. It's likely going to be another uh, kind of uh, non-interview episode, collection of papers given at the American Academy of Religion. Um, maybe I'll have that up within a week or so. Um, that's all for today. On my name is my name with APS. Uh, I hope you had a happy new year. Um, I hope you are looking forward to a good 2016. Just remember, whatever happens this year, your name is your name. When the storm comes.
will remember when you get home.